What if we didn't just rediscover Jesus in the Bible? What if we took a look all around us and found Jesus in unexpected places? You're listening to Happy and Holy, a podcast about discipleship and community and how we meet each other right where we are to be the people of God on planet Earth. And when we do, we have the potential to become the happy and holy disciples we are meant to be. I'm your host, Kate Boyd, and this is our last episode of season three. Um, And it has been such a fun time this season, going through some scripture to see some of the unusual things about Jesus that maybe we didn't see when we were younger. So I thought it would be fun on this last one to look for Jesus in an unexpected place. And I put out on Twitter that um, once upon a time, I did a presentation about um, finding literary and gospel influences in Harry Potter. And people really loved it. I sent out the link to the presentation a whole bunch of times. And I thought, you know what? This would be a really fun way to wrap up the season so that we can start seeing Jesus um, you know, and God and, and all of those things in the cultural things around us so we can build those bridges. Um, which is one of the things that's really important to me, um, as a believer, as a creator. And so today we're going to look into Harry Potter. I still have that presentation that's recorded and I'm going to share it with you as the main part of the episode today. And so I hope you buckle up Um, If you don't like Harry Potter, maybe this will help you like it a little bit more. Um, And if you do, then I think you'll really enjoy it. So let's dive in. When I was young, um, I went to a very small private Christian school and we would get um, those scholastic book orders. Um, It was basically like a little, if you're not familiar, they're like a little catalog of books that you can't find in the library because they're new, but you could go through and you could order them and you could turn them into the school and then you would get them a few weeks later. Um, So at my school, actually, um, when I was in high school, when Harry Potter first came out um, and the movie started happening and people were starting to pay attention, you would start to see the Harry Potter books in these scholastic book orders. And actually someone who has so much patience um, that I can't even imagine doing this for hundreds of of orders across the school, but went through and crossed out all of the Harry Potter um, orders, all the options. You in big X's, permanent black marker, um, anything that related or referenced Harry Potter was just not allowed. Um, so being the rule follower that I am, I didn't read them back then. Um, because if something wasn't allowed for me to read back then, I just didn't get to it. It sort of becomes like a pop culture blind spot for me. Um, however, my husband is a couple of years younger than me and he grew up in a family that weren't believers. He went to, you know, a public school where they could order whatever they wanted. And he has always been a Harry Potter fan. In fact, he is why I'm into them at all. When we got married, I made him watch all the Star Wars and he made me listen to all of the Harry Potter books and finish watching the movies with him because they were wrapping up in the first couple of years of our marriage. Um, and I was resistant because in my mind, they were children's stories still. Um, and maybe that's something that you encounter too, because they do feel like children's stories, at least in the beginning. But as the series develops, it becomes 
darker in what it handles. It becomes more hopeful. Um, and then as it completes, it even has imprints of the gospel story, which is some of what we will talk about today and is now a big part of why I'm a girl who has a Ravenclaw t-shirt, actually a couple of them. I have a wand that looks just like Hermione's that I got from the Wizarding World of Harry Potter last year. And I compete in Harry Potter trivia because I'm so nerdy and we typically place in the top five. So that's how much of a Harry Potter fan that I've become now that I've been a part of this series and that I have seen how it develops and what it looks like. And I hope that after this discussion, you'll learn and appreciate these children's stories a little bit more as you go to. Because J.K. Rowling has um, brought in a lot of different things that is really wonderful. So I want to start by just introducing you a little bit more to J.K. Because she's fabulous and she's why we have these things that we do. So she was actually born Joanne. She has no middle name. She changed her name for boy readers. The publisher suggested that boys wouldn't read a book by by Joanne, written by a woman, so she named it, she changed it to JK, and Kathleen is her maternal grandma, which is where she got the K from. Um, and she grew up in a typical family and led a mostly typical life in her youth. She says that she was an okay student, but she loved to read. So in college, she even made a reference to her less than enthusiastic pursuit of knowledge in classes, but that she'd rather be off reading Dickens and Tolkien. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't, right? And she held a variety of jobs after a period of time um, and after a period of losing her mom and getting divorced and becoming a single mother, she found herself unable to work because of different circumstances, and so she set herself upon writing. And that first book that she wrote was Harry Potter, the character that would eventually lead her to becoming the first billionaire author. Um, and so it's clear, just like the Harry Potter stories that focus on friendship and community, as well as deeper themes like death and power and good versus evil, that she doesn't consider Harry Potter her own. She pulls from a wealth of influences in her life, and um, that's really the bulk of what I want to talk about today, is explore the different places that she pulls from, so that, um, you know, in that small bit of space where her brain had to wander on the commuter train, those influences came together, and they led to one of our, one of the most beloved characters of our time. So we're going to explore those influences in four specific categories, four categories, her life, um, literature, her faith, and language. So first up with her life is, um, and things that you will see inside Harry Potter from her is that she actually had the idea after the death of her mom, after she had her baby, and as she was getting divorced. This sort of happened in a span of, of a few years um, or less for her. And so she actually channeled those feelings of loss about her mother through Harry Potter. So that's part of why he's an orphan. She was processing that along with Harry Potter as well. Um, another thing that you'll see is King's Cross Station, which is a big station in London if you haven't been there. And that's where her parents met. So that's part of why it's a special place um, or why Hogwarts Express leaves from there is because her parents met there and she wanted to honor that. She also pictures herself a lot like Hermione. She kind of modeled her after that. And her friend Sean had a car that looked like the flying one that you see in the movies um, and in the book. And um, 
yeah, like we mentioned, she pulled from a lot of literary references um, because she really just devoured books. She loved reading, and so you sort of see that in Hermione herself, but it also sort of influenced how literature then became a part of the books and influenced her. So that's what we'll talk about next. Um, it's how literature influenced her. So the first place that she pulled from was from British folklore and mythology. She thinks it's one of the richest because it combines a whole bunch from all the people that sort of invaded England. They've got all in the UK, they've got all of that together. Um, and so she sort of pulled like mythical creatures and other parts of stories into Harry Potter and the mythology in the world that is created there. She was also influenced by the Iliad. Oh, I should note there are spoilers. So if you're concerned about having parts of, of different ones of these um, spoiled for you, then I apologize, or maybe you should skip <laughs> because um, there are heavy spoilers in this. Um, so she was also influenced by the Iliad and specifically in the scene in the Goblet of Fire where um, Harry brought back Cedric's body. Ced was very much um, in line with the Iliad, what she saw in the actions of Hector, Achilles, and Patroclus, um, and and the idea of like not desecrating a body and bringing it back. Um, she was also there are also two epigraphs in the start of the Deathly Hallows, um, and they come from two different places. One of them comes from uh, William Penn's More Fruits of Solitude, and one comes from Aeschylus's The Libation Barrier. Bearer, not barrier, bearers. She said she really enjoyed choosing from those two quotations because one is pagan and one is from Christian t- Christian tradition. And she knew that she was going to use those ever since that she published the Chamber of Secrets. Um, and she wanted to, then, to use them both at um, the beginning of book seven because they queued up the ending perfectly. And so that's really what she wanted um, was for those two to set up what she had in mind. She also was influenced by the Canterbury Tales, specifically the Pardoner's Tale, which, if you are familiar with it, um, has um, has a lot of people fighting right over something um, and trying to possess something that's powerful. And so the um, the the tale of the Deathly Hallows is actually heavily influenced by that as well. Um, another thought that she thought about a lot was she loved Shakespeare and Macbeth was one of her favorites. And when it came to the prophecy that was inside of Harry Potter, um, she sort of hearkened back in her mind to Macbeth wondering what if Macbeth had never heard that prophecy? Um, if he had never heard of that, um, would it have become the catalyst for the situation that happened? And so she sort of thinks that too about the prophecy with Voldemort. What if that had never happened? What if he had never heard it? Would Harry Potter be his enemy like he was set up to do? Um, Rowling also cites Jane Austen as a favorite author and major influence. No surprise there. Um, And she says that you can see this a lot in the Harry Potter series, which it's kind of known for its twist endings and the little things that she changes up. And she stated that she has never, though she tries, she has never had a surprise ending book um, in Harry Potter that will ever do anywhere near as well as Jane Austen did in Emma. So there you go. That's where she really likes to pull from for those twist endings. 
She was also influenced by another woman named Dorothy L. Sayers. Um, And Dorothy Sayers wrote a lot of detective novels, and she mostly pulled this from uh, in that, where she feels like Harry Potter sometimes feels like a detective novel. But there's a theory that Dorothy L. Sayers had that you should not have romantic intrigue in a detective book um, unless you are using it to camouflage people's motives, which she said was a very useful trick that she learned from her. And she used it with Percy and a degree with Tonks in the books as well as a red herring. Um, She was also familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia from C.S. Lewis and found herself thinking about the wardrobe um, route to Narnia when Harry is told to hurl himself into the barrier at King's Cross Station. And when it dissolves, he's on platform nine and three quarters, and there's the train for Hogwarts, and that's sort of like a, a wardrobe moment. Though she is conscious of saying that Narnia is obviously a, a completely different world, whereas the Harry Potter world exists within the world that we live in. Um, at least in her universe, right? Um, she was also influenced by the sword in the stone. She, um, sees Dumbledore as kind of like the absent-minded professor kind of Merlin, um, mentor. And, um, obviously King Arthur and Harry, um, are sort of in that. So that relationship she sort of modeled off of as well. So in addition to literature, which she was clearly super familiar with a lot of depth of literature, she was also influenced by her faith. And it may surprise some people to even realize that she has a faith, um, but she does consider herself a Christian. She identifies as Christian, and she currently attends the Church of Scotland and was raised in the Church of England. Um, and in fact, she says, you know, if you were to ask her, is she a Christian? She told an outlet once, yes, I am, which seems to offend the religious right far worse than if I said I thought there was no God. Every time I've been asked if I believe in God, I've said yes, because I do. But no one has ever really gone any more deeply into it than that. And I have to say that does suit me, because if I talk too freely about the about that, I think the intelligent reader, reader, whether 10 or 60, will be able to guess what's coming in the book. So for her, Harry Potter was always meant to have this um, Christian gospel-y arc. And that's part of why she, you know, was happy that people didn't ask about her faith, but she also a little frustrated that so many people, um, you know, don't sort of sit on that same wavelength with her or um, sometimes condemn the world that she's built because of the includes the inclusion of, of witchcraft and wizardry. Um, she does say she believes in God, not magic. She's not <laughs> under any delusion that that's a thing. Um, and though she is known to be more liberal on some cultural items, um, like gay marriage and things like that, she does still hold to what we would call Orthodox Christianity. She believes in the afterlife, which you'll see is affected in the books as well. And despite coming under fire for using the context or setting or device of witchcraft and wizardry, um, when you actually look in the books, the moral and religious themes are really, really obvious. And so I'm going to pull some of those out for you now um, <clears throat> because I think they're, they can be easy to overlook if you're not looking for them, but when you're looking for them, you see them all over the place. So the first thing is that ultimately, Harry Potter is a story of the battle between good and evil, right? The battle that we all face um, or that Voldemort really wants to defeat death and obtain ultimate power. 
How familiar does that sound, right? Like our struggle with Satan and flesh. And even when you look back at the fall for it being beautiful, beneficial, delightful, right? Um, It's the same choice that Voldemort is faced with. And we see this tension between good and evil and good fighting evil um, throughout the whole thing. Um, There's also a point at which she quotes scripture that's on on tombstones specifically. But one is um, on the tombstone of... And they're on the tombstones of Dumbledore's mother and sister. And one is where your treasure is there, your heart will be off also, which is from Matthew 6, 19. Um, and uh, there's another from 1 Corinthians 15, 26 in there as well. And she says this is actually very, um, which I believe is like the only foe left to be defeated is death. It's enemy left to be defeated is death. It's something like that um, off the top of my head. So while she says that Hogwarts is a multi-faith school, because it's obviously, um, the quotes are distinctly Christian, of course, and um, it's a very British thing, she says, to have Bible verses on tombstones. But she really liked these two um, because they sum up and sort of epitomize the whole series. Another thing that you'll see in um, the books is that love is the most powerful magic there is. Um, in fact, there's even protection from evil through a loving sacrifice of his mother. So when she sacrifices herself in front of Harry, whenever he's one year old, um, that, you know, love then not only protects him for then, but it protects for years and years. And it's through, it's like in his blood, essentially. Um, and that's why when he lives with his aunt and uncle for the first 18, 17, 18 years of his life, that's part of what protects him as long as he's there. Voldemort can't find him there. And all of that results from blood um, and a loving sacrifice. Um, you also see with the Deathly Hallows that you um, become the master of death is really what they're going for. But that's not actually how you become the master of death. Um, and what they set it up to be is that, you know, there is... Um, you become the master of death with power, love, and humility versus having all of these things. And it's also in death that Harry saves the world and defeats Voldemort. So it's actually a very Christ-like example for him to actually surrender himself freely um, without kicking and screaming because he knows that when he dies, he will defeat Voldemort. Um... We also do see um, a an, a reference to the afterlife. There is an arch in the Order of Phoenix where the deceased are there and there's a belief that they will see them again. Like that's where dead wizards go. So that's where they stay and you can hear them whispering if you've seen death before. You can see Luna talk about that. Um, also, um, a couple of other things related to Harry's death. There are parallels to Jesus in Garden of in the Garden of Gethsemane, he walks to his death. He puts up no fight. Um, after he's killed, he meets Dumbledore, who is a father-like figure to him, who says he has the choice whether to return and defeat and, and ultimately defeat um, Voldemort, which he does. And so that comes into a resurrection story where Harry comes back from his sacrifice and he shows up and gets in front of Voldemort and defeats him ultimately with that power, love, and humility versus the Deathly Hallows, and all of these things that um, Voldemort is actually looking for. So when you look at the whole 
story, you see that you have an enemy who threatens to destroy the world as he pushes his wicked agenda. You've got a hero character who seems unlikely and weak and yet powerfully powerful and driven. He's driven by he's characterized by self-sacrifice, mission, the honor of his parents, vindication of good and friendship. He's willing to sacrifice himself for the benefit of others and for the defeat of evil. So, and he's also called the chosen one. Harry Potter is who fights the evil one and ultimately defeats death. So there are a lot of ways that you can see those parallels to the gospel story. And then there's a couple of other things that I want to mention as far as faith elements. One is that there's obviously the element of prophecy, which we spoke about when she talked about Macbeth, but um, this also talks about a lot, right, of similarities of like Jesus being the one to defeat death and things like that. Same thing. And then a horcrux, which is if you read Harry Potter, you know, it's how you divide your soul and then you can, you know, sort of be, you can kill one and you can still live. Um, but there is a way to restore a Horcrux back in its place, put it together, put several back together. And the way that you do that is with true remorse and repentance. So you have to actually like really repent for what you did and you have to feel that true remorse in order to put your soul back together, which I think is kind of beautiful, right? It's a lot like what we see. So those are the religious themes. The last thing that I want to pull out is the um, is the language that we see. So we see it a lot in the names that she uses. Like Hedwig is actually a Catholic saint, um, and who um, it's like a it's yeah who took who had a school that took care of orphaned and abandoned children. So it's really great that Hedwig the owl is with this orphan and abandoned child, and then Albus means white. So you see a lot of those parallels as well. But you also see it a lot through spells. So, um, you know, if you have a wand, you can feel free to pull it out at this point and you'll see what some of the spells, they pull a lot from Latin, but she's also studied things like West African stuff and Aramaic and a lot of different things that got pulled together in here. Um, so obviously Lumos means light. So if you do that, it turns on your light, Lumos. Nox means night, which turns the light off. Um, Accio, which brings, which summons things to you. So you can say Accio pin and it'll bring a pin over to you. And that comes from the same word to acquire. Um, Expelliarmus, which is two words, right? Expel, so get away or, you know, send out. Um, arms, armus, arms. So originally meant arm, but also means like being armed with a weapon, right? You take up arms, um, same thing. So for them, it means expelling the wand. Uh, stupefy, which comes from the same, you know, word that means to stun. Um, so stun, astonish, or numb um, is basically what that one does. It stuns them. Stunning spell. The unforgivable curses. Crucio, which should sound familiar, comes from cross, crucified, torture, um, and all of that 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 is associated with. Imperio, which is the spell where you can take over someone's body, basically, and make them do whatever you want, comes from the word for power, so like emperor, but the word impero means to order, so you can see how it's sort of like to order people around. Um, and Avada Kedavra, which is the killing curse, um is actually the Aramaic version from which abracadabra came from. And abracadabra was used a lot in medical settings 
as like trying to, and it means literally, abracadabra means literally, let the thing be destroyed, or Avada Kedavra does. So people used it um, in medical settings because they were trying to, they thought it might help cure sicknesses, diseases. Um, but in this case, she's like, let the thing be destroyed, the thing in front of you, which is a body. Um, and then my very favorite is Expecto Patronum, which is the Patronus curse or charm, which, um, you know, brings, which conjures their, what they call a Patronus, which is like a, a guardian spirity thing that goes before them. And it actually means I expect or await and then Patronum, like father. So it can mean father or guardian. Um, and you have to have a really happy thought when you do it. So when you think about that, um, you know, and they say it and it's expecting the father. And I think that sort of echoes like what we do in prayer, right? We are grateful and we remember and we expect the father to show up in a lot of great ways. So that is all I have for you. Um, and I hope that Harry Potter has become a deeper and richer, well for you to draw draw from and be inspired by for you know your faith and for sharing about other um you know literature and language and all these beautiful things that come together to give us a story that we all love i hope that you found that helpful and enlightening and i hope that you start seeing jesus in um or jesus parallels at least in the places that are all around you because our world is actually saturated in it, right? Um, So I hope that you enjoy that. And I just want to say a big thank you for joining me for season three and look for season four in May with a different format and a different approach, which I'm so excited about um, inviting you all in and bringing you along for the ride. There'll be a trailer soon for that. So stay tuned and I will see you in season four. Take care.